Welcome to Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel, with helpful travel tips, news and events, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from seasoned and experienced traveling anglers. This is your backstage pass to the world of fishing travel. Waypoints is fueled by adventure and brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing, a hands-on specialty travel and booking company that delivers the industry's very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered. And now your host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. I'm joined today by the legendary Arno Mathy, an individual who was recently described by a popular fly fishing magazine as guide, guru, mystic dream weaver, and fly fishing pioneer. In the U.S., not a lot of anglers and casual fishermen know who Arno is. That said, I would describe him as one of the most legitimate, pioneering, significant anglers and guides you've likely never heard of here in the States. In South Africa, however, everyone knows Arno's name, and any fly fisherman or guide will tell you that when it comes to his decades of contributions to the sport and his explorations of remote waters and adventurous fisheries, he's an absolute legend. So Arno, thanks so much for sitting down not today with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jim. You're very welcome. It's good to have you here in Montana, all the way from uh, from South Africa. Arno, I want to start by asking you a little bit about your background, where you're from, where you grew up, that sort of thing. Yeah, no problem. So um, I was born and raised in South Africa, um, in the Cape province from an early age, and then uh, kind of moved around. My dad was a judge. So that kind of kept us on the road a little bit, moving around. Um, yeah, that's my roots are, are pretty much uh, in South Africa. So you found your way to, to fly fishing at a young age. Tell us a little bit about that journey, how old you were when uh, you found your way to the sport. Sure, it was the first time I was exposed to the sport. Um, I was 14 years old. It would have been 1982. And I saw older guys uh, fishing one of the small Cape streams. Um, well, you have to translate it. It's called the First River in Stellenbosch. And uh, that from the moment I was hooked and it intrigued me. So I went over and chatted to him. So the old guy helped me out and, uh, you know, showed me how to cast, fly and got my first fly rod and, um, you know, one of those old floppy fiberglass rods in the old days. So, yeah, that's kind of where it started, you know, and then uh, kind of really got back into it just sort of late in high school uh, to start on my national service. Um actually went on pass from uh, from from a trip to the border and uh, I went to a farm in East Griqualand where they had trout on the farm and uh, we started really fishing for trout that's when I got into it like really got back stuck back into it and then obviously the Val River uh, started fishing for yellowfish and then um, the techniques were really archaic in those days so uh, we eventually stumbled across a, a book called a Guide to Aquatic Trout Food by Dave Whitlock. And that oh, Whitlock's our, a legend. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> yeah, so that changed our lives. Um, then we found all these different patterns and uh, started picking up rocks and looking underneath and identifying all the insects and started tying flies for that. And yeah, that kind of opened up a whole new world for us in South Africa, fishing-wise there. Now, you know, the uh, South Africa in the 80s, that was in, you know, those were interesting times for sure. And I know that you had to go and you did your national service, your military service, and you ended up being a riot policeman for a bunch of years. 
Yeah, so we, national service was compulsory for us to do. So, um, yeah, when we went into do our basic training, a few of us were drafted to uh, a different unit. So we ended up at the right unit, Unit 2. Um, yeah, and that's where I spent four years uh, pretty much doing riot policing and doing some border work, you know, uh, on the Namibian border. Probably some pretty spicy years, I would imagine. Yeah, very spicy years. I must say it's a good time of my life that I never want to relive again. <laughs> but, it, yeah, it kind of um, teaches you a lot of other skills, you know, to be comfortable with the wilderness and not having too much around you. And, yeah, my sense of exploration kind of pushed me to, um, you know, to do what I do today. And that's got probably has a lot to do with it. Well, and, and after those probably chaotic years doing that, you were probably ready for a little bit of peace and quiet. And uh, after that, still at a very young age, uh, you found your way to Alphonse in the Seychelles. You were guiding there in the very early years of that operation. How did that kind of all come together for you? And how did that start? Well, that's an interesting story. I was... Um I was standing on the front porch of a house that uh, myself and a couple of friends rented. And uh, I said to one friend, um, Eugene Boyce, and I said to him, I've had what alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity. <laughs> I'm going to go guiding, you know. And yeah, six months later, I was on Alphonse Island in the Seychelles, you know, international guiding. I'd done bits and pieces in South Africa around the Vol. But yeah, so it was an interesting story. I was standing in the fly shop owned by Mark Yelland and uh, a Frenchman called and uh, he said he was looking for guides, South African guides, because it was so close to the Seychelles. And then Mark Yelland said, well, I've got three potential guides standing right in front of me. And then, yes, I had an interview with him a week later. And then, yes, that's, that's how it started. And the, you know, nowadays the Seychelles are pretty well known. A lot of people go there. It's very comfortable, somewhat developed, good infrastructure. But you're talking about the very, very early days of this fishery. What was it like being in there in the in the early years and being one of the the few that really had to figure out a fishery that, in so many ways, was totally new and untouched at that time? Yeah, it was very interesting because at that stage none of us had caught even caught a bonefish. You know, so we walked in there with kind of a blank canvas. Um, I remember I had to start guiding, um, you know, American clients. And I, up to that point, maybe caught five bonefish, you know, in the couple of days that I had to fish for myself before the clients arrived. So it was a pretty daunting task. But in those days, it was it was kind of easy. There were a lot of fish around. And, yeah, we kind of just found our way, you know, and uh, looked around and started figuring the fishery out. It was only really after spending a full year on Alphonse that, you know, the pieces of the puzzle started coming together and you kind of figured out okay so this is how it works and it's all really about the tides and being in the right place at the right time and timing is critical you know and then um, from there we kind of worked on you know perfecting the other species like trigger fish in the pacific permit gts and all that and, and you didn't i mean there was no manual there was no senior guide who had been there for years helping you guys out you had to literally kind of crack the code on your own and one of the species that you found on alphonse when you got there on alphonse and nearby saint francois was the milkfish and for those that don't know it the milkfish is a super strange species uh, that at that time no one knew anything about when it came to fly fishing and for those that are listening arno and don't know know what milkfish are describe them to us tell us a little bit about milkies yeah so milkfish is probably the strongest fish that you'll that you'll tangle with um you know they uh they mainly plankton eaters you know they feed on benthic algae and tiny crustaceans but they are super powerful they stand alone um as a species chanos chanos 
And uh, yeah, so it's they just um, really intrigued me. Actually, before I went to, I, w- I got the job in Alphonse, there was a couple of guys that went out to the Seychelles and one of the guys fell hooked to milkfish and they filmed, they videoed it. And uh, in my first interview with Chris Ponson, I said, I'm going to figure out how to catch these fish on fly. So yeah, we started and uh, myself and Wayne Haslow, we walked the flats and, um, you know, I didn't realize the power of these fish. So I was kind of fishing to a few bonefish with a tiny little um, chartreuse and white clouser. And the tide was quite strong and the fly was kind of skipping along the bottom and a milkfish came past and picked it up um, just in front of the bonefish and took off. Like, it's something that I've never experienced before. I just kept running and running and running. And that fish was only 10 pounds. That was a small milky. <laughs> it was a tiny milkfish. Oh, the, probably the smallest one I've ever caught was the <laughs> first one. And I thought, oh, this is easy. You know, we've we definitely cracked, the, cracked this code. Yeah, so... Needless to say, a year later, you know, that's when I really started figuring them out. So it took a took a lot of work, but yeah, just to get back to the milkfish. I mean, it is it is a super powerful fish. If you can compare it, you can probably say it's got the speed of a bonefish. It jumps like a tarpon, and it's you know, and then it starts sounding like a tuna. So it's a combination of those three fish. And in the early days, I mean, a, a Average fight was an hour and a half on those fish. And and what people need to know about milkies is they're one of the few species, they don't build up lactic acid, so they don't yeah, get tired. They don't get tired. They just go on and on. I was I fished with an American guy called Chip Bates, and I was on a 16-foot Maverick skiff, and we hooked a milkfish. It towed us across three lagoons and eventually cut us off going over the, over the last reef on the fourth lagoon. So it, it is incredible to see a fish of say 35 pounds do that you know that's it's it's unheard of well and they're they're still a super exotic species that uh they're really in a league of their own but you, you got to alphonse you get your first taste you catch one you're thinking okay maybe we're getting this figured out but then you you set yourself to really you know you're determined to crack the code yes. and and you do yeah well it was <laughs> it was quite a slow process so um after catching that fish you know, you go through this whole mind process of how to figure these things out. So we saw all these tiny bits of turtle grass that almost looked like they were bitten off, like a cow feeding on it. So some of the first flies were flies, um, you know, tied with a little hackles to look like a blade of turtle grass to cast it in amongst all that thinking you might get a fish to come It's a super slow retrieve when you're fishing a turtle grass fly. static. And then so we had epoxy and rolled it in sand so it would blend in with the bottom and... It just carried on and on and on. Um, and eventually I stopped fishing for, for these fish completely. And I just just started observing them, you know, looking at them, going out alone from Alphonse to St. Francois, spending days in the channels, putting on a mask and snorkel, looking at them. Um, so it took a long time, like literally a year from when I caught the first one. And then um, I had a dream, <laughs> believe it or not, about tying this fly. And I jumped up at about three o'clock in the morning and I tied... I think four flies and I had two clients with me um, going out that day um, and we walked across this flat and it was really tough bone fishing. The bones were kind of just sitting in the current like trout and you really had to feed them and we had no luck all the way to the end of this flat and we got to a channel and there were these massive milkfish sitting in the channel. So I just I sort of um, said to the clients, would you like to catch a milkfish? And they said, yes, let's try. And so I tied on a fly, first cast at this fish, we just dead drifted the fly into them and this milkfish ate the fly. And I couldn't believe it. I started jumping up and down. Well, needless to say, this fish ran up into another lagoon and wrapped us around like 10 coral heads and broke us off. But that's kind of when everything fell into place. And I kind of realized, well, the fish that you're looking at are not the fish right on the surface with their mouths open. 
Because those you kind of have to drift the fly right into the mouth. You're kind of flossing those. Yes. But the fish just below them, they were kind of feeding on heavier particles like the benthic algae being dislodged from the flats. And I'd see how they would move. They would never move up or down to feed. They'd move from side to side. So as long as you can imagine nymphing to a trout in a stream, by the time the fly gets to the fish, so you lead the fish upstream. And if the fly is at the same level as the trout, he's going to bite it nine times out of ten. That's exactly what we did with milkfish. So it required a lot of accurate casting, um, you know, because you don't get a lot of drift. There's no mending involved because you wanted to keep everything as straight as possible. That's kind of where we started refining the the, the technique. And the day that, that, you know, it all came together, I, straight away I contacted Wayne Haslow on the radio and I said, look, Wayne, I've got it. You know, we've cracked the code. We've got together. Um, I gave him some of the flies and we proceeded. I think we hooked 19 milkfish that day, not landing one. They just destroyed. But, but you found out how to get them to eat. We found out how to get them to eat. Yeah, then, I mean, the process was just, you know, developing what leaders to fish, what weight rods, you know, and obviously the fly wasn't at infancy. So we had to do quite a bit of development on the fly. But yeah, it's, there wasn't too much to do because I think, I think the pattern was pretty much there. And but, all these years later. Yeah. They're still fishing that same pattern, and it's still called the Milky Dream. Yes, they're still fishing the same fly. Um, I've personally made a few little tweaks to my own pattern. <laughs> but we can't do. talk about that. <laughs> as yeah. you do now, I'm happy to share, <laughs> as you do. But, yeah, it's, it's, but it's, the fly is one thing, but if you don't have the technique to accompany it, it's, it's still not going to work. You know? So it's, it's really a combination of the two that finally cause the breakthrough and, and that's pretty cool a big deal in saltwater fish i mean hands down one of the harder fish to to feed and hook and definitely one of the harder fish to land but yeah. i want to take a step back for a sec because you were talking about growing up and and yellowfish all right and and this is a species that not a lot of people in the u.s know about uh, but it's very much kind of your guys's native fish yes. in south africa especially when it comes to fly fishing it is you know if you come to the west here and, and we're focused on trout down there the yellowfish is the deal and you've spent a lot of time chasing yellowfish and and i know through having a lot of south african friends and talking to them and when i mention your name like you're a really big deal in the world of yellowfish you're kind of the ron burgundy of yellowfishing <laughs> i think but talk to us a little bit about that species and what makes yellowfish so cool yes it's 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 a great species i mean i can compare them to a freshwater bonefish obviously we get quite a few different species of yellowfish but the main ones we target is the smallmouth yellowfish and the largemouth yellowfish um yeah it's 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 just really great because they they eat dry flies you know, you can catch them on tiny nymphs, various different techniques. You can catch them on streamers. So it's 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 pretty much, you know, our equivalent of of your trout in Montana, for instance. You know, and they're abundant in South Africa. They fight really, really hard. And in saying that, without experiencing those techniques and the dry fly fishing and that kind of thing, it, it wouldn't it would have taken me or I probably wouldn't even been able to figure out milkfish down the line. Because all those techniques that you learn there kind of worked out later down the line you know they say the thing that makes a great pianist is the range that you can play between your thumb and your little finger and so all the different kinds of fishing you experience in your life if you put all that knowledge together you know that's that's kind of what what counts so yeah we're getting back to yellowfish i mean it is we spend a lot of time on it um developing the fishery and obviously taking it to a different level i mean they eat tiny little flies and the dry fly fishing for them is is spectacular and the places in the country, I mean, the rivers are, are really beautiful. We haven't got a lot of rivers in South Africa, but I mean, you can, you can have some, some really awesome fishing there. Crystal clear water, you know, 
dry fly fishing. So it's it's pretty special. And technical. And technical, yes. And also the largemouth yellowfish, uh, people told us, no, they're extinct in the middle Vol River, the Vol River being one of our famous uh, yellowfish. And, and you heard that, and you're <laughs> like, okay, let's see about this. Yes, so there was a team of us that went out, and in four days, we caught more than 100 fish over six pounds. We were just fishing different water and different techniques. And no one thought they were around anymore. Yeah, they thought they were completely extinct. Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty good. So we put that fish on the map now, and it's it's getting up there. It's like the... The Masia of Africa, you know, it's it's they, it's a pretty special fish. You know, they grow very big, up to 40, 50 pounds. Jeez, yeah. oh, that's pretty cool. Well, now I want to jump back to saltwater, okay? Yeah. So you've been on Alphonse, you've been guiding for a few years. Uh, and then you leave Alphonse as a guide and you start a new company called Fly Castaway. And you did this with Keith Rosenis and, and Gerhard Labscher. Yes. Uh, tell us how Fly Castaway came to be and how that started. Yes, okay, so... Um, while I was on Alphonse, the reason why I left was because I, I was saying to the guys, look, I mean, there's there's so much more out there. There's Cosmolito, there's Providence. Let's, why aren't we going to these places? Farquhar in those days was like this mystical place, you know, back in the day. So I pretty much achieved whatever I wanted to on Alphonse. So I decided, okay, I'm going to head back to South Africa, start a company, and we're going to, one of the things I want to do is explore these remote atolls. So I got back and... Uh, Gerard Lopesher was working for the fly shop in South Africa and he was doing all the IT stuff for the guys and setting up like an online shop. So him and I got together. I said, look, this is what I want to do. And said, no, I'm in, you know, let's let's do this thing. So we started kind of small, you know, doing some yellowfish stuff, a few Seychelles strips to the Amarantes and things like that. And then, so we had a group of clients that used to come to Alphonse in the early days, um, some Belgium guys and American, Australian guys. And they also fished the Panoi, where Keith was working at the time, Keith Rosinus. And then, so they asked me to guide, and then the, they brought Keith along as, as the second guides for the strip to Farquhar. And that's how him and I met. And uh, yeah, we worked well together, and we caught tons of fish on Farquhar. I got back to South Africa and said, okay, well, let's get together. So that's how Fly Castaway started, with the three of us. And then from there, I mean... What we achieved in a very short time was pretty incredible. At one stage, we were running three boats, um, you know, on or four boats at some stages on four different atolls. You know, it was insane the amount of fishing we did and the places we saw. So then we had to go out there and explore all these other crazy places. You know, so. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, those three names, yourself, Gerhard, Keith, I mean, you know, you guys really pioneered so much of the Seychellois out island fisheries. And again, as I said at the you know a few minutes ago at the beginning of the show, now we kind of take it for granted a little bit. It's like, oh, which one are we going to this time? Or, you know, it's just a slightly longer flight, no big deal. But yes. back in the day, it was a huge deal. And when you guys, you know, you said you had heard this, these, you know, this talk of these mythical islands and how great they were going to be. And you got to go out there and fish a lot of these things for if not the very first time, certainly the first time on the flats with fly rods in your hands. Yes, it is a very daunting task, but at least the the, the three seasons on our funds gave me a good frame of reference. So I kind of knew what to look for, you know, depressions in the flats, cuts in the reef. So that kind of gave you an idea. But I'll never forget the first time I set foot on Cosmolito, as I got out of the tender boat, I was like, oh my goodness, you know. 
where to now you know now you're in this place it's wild the tides are massive and literally five minutes later i saw some gts and we caught one and then you know the stress was over and <laughs> it's all good then yeah. you just have to you just have to grind it out and yeah and then with the invention of google earth a few years later it became really easy <laughs> that was a game changer <laughs> yes that's right well over all of your years in the seychelles uh, both on alphonse and then certainly with fly castaway after that you actually trained a good number of the known guides that came after you and and today as I've said on this program before, there's something about this small core group of South African fly fishermen. I mean, you guys have, have collectively, as a small team of people, just done so much, pioneered so much, especially in these off the grid, exotic, hard to reach places. And as I travel around for Yellow Dog, I'll, you know, I'll hear the stories and they're like, well, this, this, you know, one guy started it and uh, he was from South Africa. And it's like, well, of course he was from South Africa because you guys have just been pushing the envelope on so many of these things, which is amazing. But, you know, you personally got to train a lot of these names that are known today. I mean, Tim Babich, Yako Lucas, Christian Pretorius, all these guys, you know, you had a hand in bringing them up uh, in these areas and, and helping them get started. Yeah, that was a real privilege. I mean, just to speak about Tim Babich. His father brought him to me, Trevor Bowich, when I think he was 16 years old, and I've, I've guided him, I guided him for yellowfish. And that's how he started. His dad said to me, like, Tim wants to become a guide and he wants to learn from you. And so when he was 18 years old, he spent his, he shadow guided me on Cosmolito for his first season. So you're, you're like the Yoda. He's, <laughs> you're like the, the sensei that was going to teach him. So that's yeah, pretty that's, cool. That was a great time of my life, you know, Yaku and all these guys. But you could see when these guys came to the office and, you know, they were so keen, you know, there was nothing was going to hold them back. So it was, it was pretty easy, you know, um, to work with them and, and you know, the diverse personalities. And some of those guys, I mean, they're really fishy, you know, still today, they, they're making their mark in the fly fishing industry worldwide, you know, so it's, without a doubt, I'm very proud to have been involved in their careers. And so you, you guided kind of all over the out islands, not just Alphonse, of course, where you got your start, but then you hit Cosmo, a stove, Providence, Farquhar, Poivre, St. Joe's, all of these places. Yeah. You've kind of seen and, and worked them all over the years. Pretty much, yeah, all of them. Um, I think the most time probably spent was Alphonse and Cosmolito. I did five seasons on Cosmolito, four seasons on Providence, and then bits and pieces on the other islands. But yeah, it's it's a privilege, you know, um, to have seen those places in, in you know when it was really pristine. You kind of felt like you were the first person ever on planet Earth to walk around there with a fly rod. Well, in some of these places, you undoubtedly were. <laughs> That's pretty cool to think about. <laughs> it is, yes. So you do this for a number of years, right? And then you you build Fly Castaway up, as you guys said. You're cranking along. You're sending tons of anglers out there. And then you decide, okay, I've kind of had my fill of the Seychelles for a while, yes. and you leave Fly Castaway. And you decide to set out in search of, of the next frontier. And you head where? You go to Western Africa. Yes. So, uh, yeah, West Africa. Because I developed this passion for top and um, obviously reading all the American magazines and, you know, fly fishing in salt water, looking at top. And, and uh, yeah, so I got my first introduction to top in Angola um, with, with a good friend of mine, Rob Lewis, who had a business established there. So he invited us to fish for tarpon and then the bug really got me. And I was like, this, there's nobody doing anything. The West coast of Africa is definitely the last frontier. According to me, you know, like it's, it's wild. There's nobody there still today. My flat skiffs are the only flat skiffs in the entire West coast of Africa, you <laughs> know, real flat skiffs. So that's kind of where, where the bug bit me then. Uh... Well, I got, I have to cut you off right there though, because this is always <laughs> fascinating to me is, in the States, you had all these guys, they, 
they find their way to tarpon. They love tarpon. I mean, tarpon are definitely addicting. All right. But in their mind, there's always this, this legendary species that's out there and it's the giant trevally. Like everyone kind of decides that at the next level, they're going to find their way to GT fishing. And that's, you know, the, the top of the mountain, right? Now here you are in the epicenter of the greatest GT fishing in the world for years and years and years you're out there. And then you kind of go the other way. You're like, Oh my God, what, what is this thing about tarpon? You get bit hard by the bug and you decide you're going to completely pivot away from GTs and go all in on tarpon. Yeah, pretty much. That's, that was the, (laughs) (laughs) that was the idea. Um, yeah. So the, the Congo was, was my first big, um, big exploratory, really putting yourself out there really knowing nobody there, going in there, no boats. I, I, my first exploratory I did with a plastic canoe and walking the beaches, you know, rowing around um, <laughs> the ocean, the coast of, of Republic of Congo, going up into some rivers where most of the people there have never seen a Westerner, you know. Like children would run away because they'd never seen a white, a white person <laughs> before. So it was pretty wild. Um, then obviously found a good population of fish there, but then, you know, the logistics just to drive in there is three hours to drive in, to do shopping, did you get anything? Fuel. It was it was so so hard. Um, and then yes, uh, we did a few trips up there. It was pretty good. There's some big top and caught some really massive top up there. And then from there, I got the, the fantastic opportunity to uh, be involved in pretty much building a mothership, and then uh, captaining the mothership, sailing it across from Miami to Gabon and exploring the west coast of Africa. So that was uh, quite a big break for me to get that. You, you have a buddy who is completely also bitten by the tarpon bug you guys get together he says let's build this boat put it together and then let's go off on this three-year journey to Mm -hmm. fish every nook and cranny of western africa in search of the largest tarpon on the planet yeah pretty much that's was uh (laughs) (laughs) that's what happened and you spent three years doing this yes that's it's like winning the lottery when somebody says to you let's do this project um you know just purely exploring Every day, if you want to go and fish, you just go, you burn as much fuel as you need to just go and look for fish. So it was an amazing experience to be able to do that. All the oaks back in the Seychelles were like, hey, man, what happened to Arno? And they're like, I, I don't know. I haven't seen him in like three years. <laughs> yeah, I completely went off the grid. Yeah, it was it was quite a hard comeback into the industry after being away for so long. But uh, yeah, it was well worth it. And then, yeah, I think um, all the hard work paid off, you know, found some amazing things in West Africa. And there's still a lot to do there. But yeah, I think it's it's really paid off. Well, let me ask you specifically about tarpon. I mean, because again, we talked about the GT thing. You switch over from GTs, you become this disciple of the Silver King. You're all in on tarpon. What is it about tarpon as a as a game fish that, in your opinion, makes these fish so great? And and I'm I'm going to just share a quote real quick. I read somewhere you wrote that you called them one of the tr- few truly mighty fish that anglers have a real shot at which is pretty cool. But yes. w- what is it for you about tarpon that have just captivated you? I think it's just everything about them, the way they build, how they jump, how strong they are, how hard it is to hook them. Um, it's it's everything about, I, th- I don't think you can sit down and on paper design, the, if you have to design the ultimate game fish, you'd come up, you finish up with the drawing of a tarpon. I mean, they are just that spectacular and they they're pretty scary also i mean the tarpon in west africa are big so we've tangled with some really serious fish there and sometimes when you see a big fish you're not sure if you really want to cast it at it you know it's 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 that big but i think it's just that thrill they because they are so hard to catch and because it is in an area that is so unexplored 
every single fish we we catch is is this great achievement you know and it's and it's worth celebration because really nothing is known about their migratory patterns there there's very little information about those west african fish well i i've always actually i heard someone say this but i've adopted it and i love it the only thing that would make tarpon a more perfect game fish the way they eat jump they're acrobatic they fight they leap they do it all the only thing that would make them better is if they screamed when they jumped yes. that, that would be like <laughs> the perfect thing but they've got 99 percent of all the qualities right there yeah. that's pretty cool so you took your three-year hiatus you fished all over western africa uh the west coast of africa when you're talking about angola and congo and gabon at least here in the states that's not thought of as is the most stable place in the world and it maybe because it's just not very well understood yes tell us about operating over there and working over there yeah i mean some places have obviously got their challenges but i think there's a there's a if you mention the word congo there's always a stigma about the congo because there's been so much written about it and you think it's deep darkest africa and there's you know, cannibals running around all over the place, but it's it's really not like that. You know, it's, I, th uh, I thought it was the mutant gorillas protecting the <laughs> diamond mines, like in the crappy adventure movies. Isn't yes. that it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is. Uh, if you don't know the area, um, it can be pretty daunting to go in there. But once you've kind of broken in there and people know you, then you realize it's actually pretty safe, and you can go around. There's normal shops like everywhere else. You know, there's normal people. They drive cars. They go to work. They come back home. So it's 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 pretty normal, you know, it's just because it's in the West coast of Africa that, uh, and it's not well known. You know, if, if you said to people 30 years ago, let's go to Cosmolito and the Seychelles, they would have thought you're crazy, you know, cause nobody knows about it. It's wild. It's in the middle of nowhere. Who's going to protect you. So it's pretty, it's, it's very, it's a very similar thing. You just have to put yourself out there and get in there, which is the difficult part and, and, you know, setting the logistics up. And once you've got that up and running, it's, it actually becomes pretty easy. And every year we're doing it gets easier and easier, you know, we build up more contacts, logistics become easier. So it's like any other place, really. And now after all this exploration throughout the West Coast of Africa, now you're based out of Gabon and you're focusing exclusively on, on that country's massive tarpon. And what is it about Gabon specifically compared to the other places that you visited and fished over there? What is it about this fishery that you love and, and what do you think makes it so unique? Well, I think what makes it unique, if you if you have to um if you have to look at the ocean setup you know there's there's really protected areas that you don't have a lot of wind most of the co the west african coast is pretty open and exposed and the gabon coastline there's a lot of places where you have a lot of protection and you don't have to deal with shore break and waves like that so and it's 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 not really we're not really fishing big rivers um per se we're more fishing estuarine systems that's more regulated by the tide. Obviously the rain influences a tiny bit, but it's more a tidal system. And I think the key for me is, is, is we have the protection and the abundance of fish. It is just, it's unbelievable the amount of fish there. And also the, the conservation um, approach of the Gabonese is probably, it's world-class. Nobody protects their waters um, as well as they do anywhere in Africa. And I think very few places in the world are policed and protected with regulations in place. And that makes a huge difference to know that when you're going into an area, it's a it's a marine park, you know, and it's and these waters are protected. Every single river mouth is protected. And you don't think of that when you think of that area of West Africa. You would think it's kind of a free-for-all, but you were saying, first of all, you're the only operation there. You're the only boat that's out there going after these fish, and you still get checked almost daily. 
I don't get checked. I wouldn't say daily, but I do get I do get checked, and it's and it's great to see. You. Obviously, the guys know me, and they know my documents. All my guys have got fishing licenses, and my boats are registered there. I've got a company registered there, so it helps a lot. But it, it all that wouldn't have been possible without guys like Mike Fay, for instance, who had put all that groundwork in. Guys like Lee White, who had put all that groundwork in to make sure that the conservation stays right up there, and it you know it's a, it's a continuous process. Um, so we're also in the process of setting up a, a tarpon conservancy there, which will help a lot. And through the money that we raise there, we can help come guys like the ANPN and Department of Fisheries to help police the waters even better. You know, so I think it's a it's kind of a combined effort. We're all eyes and ears on the ground trying to keep the poachers out. And it's really paid off. It's worked very well. And and we've talked about how healthy the fishery is. There's a lot of tarpon there. Yes. But let's talk for a second about how big these fish are. Because they are massive tarpon. Yes, they're very big. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get you get all kinds of sizes, but I think some of the big females. I mean, last season we we had five fish over two hundred pounds to the boat, and that's that's pretty incredible on a fly rod to do that, and lost countless others, really big ones. I don't know why these fish get so big. I, I also think for a start, nobody kills tarpon there, so it's nobody eats them. Um, here and there, one might get caught by mistake, but. It's not really a good eating fish. So these fish just grow. And there's definitely subtle differences. Look, I traveled a, a lot to learn about tarpon, learned from guys like Jero Brewer, you know, here in Florida, in North Florida, fished Cuba, I fished Belize. I try to go as many places as possible to learn about tarpon, to kind of get a better frame of reference and apply it to where I am. Look, certain things you can, but it's a very different fishery. But the size of these, I don't know. I mean, it's they are just monstrous, some of those females. They're so much bigger than anything I've seen anywhere else. Are, are you comfortable telling us the largest fish you've landed on a fly yet at client land? Yes. Uh, well, according to measurements, because I don't kill the top and I didn't weigh it, but the fish measured 48 inches girth and 92 inches fork length. So that'll, um, according to the scale of measurements, that's 189 pounds or 289 yeah, pounds. 289. Sorry, 289 pounds. 289 for a tarpon. 289 landed, yes. Um, really massive fish. And I have seen bigger fish hooked and lost um, this past season. So the more time we spend, the more big fish we see. And at some days it's just ridiculous. I mean, you'll have eight or nine fish laying up that are all over two meters long, like just lying there, you know, sunning themselves. So it's it's pretty incredible to have that amount of big fish around. And And I mean... Biggest landed at 289. Yes. You've lost bigger fish. So mm -hmm. we know that there are fish 300 pounds and larger in that fishery. Definitely. Most people would just say, bullshit, tarpon don't get that large. But they do, and they they're do. in Gabon. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 I think there's, there must be other places on the west coast of Africa that you'll also find them. But um, logistically, I don't think you'll be able to get to them that easily. Whereas in our place, yeah, definitely. Um, the sheer numbers of big fish is just incredible. I mean, there'll be days where you'll be sitting on the boat and you'll see more than 100 fish rolling around you and they all 200-pound plus fish. <laughs> that, Jeez. Yes. And, and clearly the locals don't want to mess with them because if they hook one of those things, it just breaks all their stuff. Yeah, it'll break all their equipment. <laughs> they swamp their boat. I yes, mean, the whole thing. Yes. They don't want anything to do with them. They don't mess with them, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me ask you about that because this is, I mean, you got to bring your big boy pants if you're going to fish for tarpon in this size. I mean, when you're talking about your operation in Gabon, you know, for traveling anglers, for tarpon addicts, I mean, 
what type of, of angler should go? What type of a fisherman is best suited for your fishery over in Gabon? Yeah, I think it should be reasonably fit. Um, it'll help, definitely help if you've had some big fish experience like tangling with GTs, you know, or tarpon fishing before. Um, you know, it should be in reasonably good condition, um, reasonably fit, because it does take it out of you, you know, fighting a big fish like that. Although we've we've definitely worked on the techniques and we're landing them a lot faster than we used to. I mean, I'm on the line a lot quicker, pulling on the lead on on the leader a lot faster than we than normally would do. But yeah, I think um, because it's a lot of people look at West Africa and they think it's dredging, it's dirty brown water that you're fishing in. It's not like that at all. You know, there's there are times on an outgoing tide, for instance, where the water will be a little bit darker. But a lot of it is side casting to load up fish or cruising fish or rolling fish in reasonably clean water. And, um, you know, you don't need a 16 weight. We fish with 12 weight rods and that rod's more than enough stick to, to pull a fish. If the guide knows what he's doing and he can position the skiff properly, you know, you'll make that fish work on a 12 weight and you can land them reasonably easy. But you're not fishing anything less than a 12. I mean, you're showing up with the right backing, the right lines. I yes. mean, you got to be kitted out the right way. Cause yeah, proper. I suggest everybody bring three 12-weight rods. Um, <laughs> then, then you're good, you know. <laughs> you average, you break one every two days, you're fine. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, but you got, and so you're fishing a combination of like floating lines, um, mid-sink lines. And you were saying uh, 500 grain as well. Um, yeah, we're fishing mainly floating and intermediate lines for the tarpon. Um, for the tarpon, and then um, for because there's an abundance of other species also. So when the tarpon fishing does slow down a bit, um, there's some good areas to catch big Afri uh, giant African threadfin, Kibera snappers, African red snappers, and obviously the jack Ravel also. They get quite big in the longfin jacks, but those we target on floating line and poppers or streamers. And yeah. and tarpon is mostly floating and intermediate. Mostly floating and intermediate. I actually prefer floating line for them. Uh, it's that's my preferred preferred tackle setup for them. Well, you gotta have the right rods. You definitely gotta have the right reels. Um, yes. You don't you don't bring your Fisher Price my first tarpon setup to uh, Gabon. <laughs> no. You're, you're, no, gonna, it, you're gonna it, want good gear. I've seen some tackle explode there. So you want you want to have good gear, a drag with a really good good drag system on it. Yeah, enough backing because we're fishing off skiffs, so it's not like you can't follow the fish. You don't need. 600 yards of backing you need 250 is enough you know you can chase the fish um but yeah definitely good rods as long as you keep your rod angles good um you know you can land those fish and you can land them faster than people think too a um, lot faster yeah. because that fish is pulling a fly line through the water also which yeah. makes a huge difference that's a lot of drag for those fish and the angles that you pulled what i've learned a lot from fishing with guides in the states you know it really depends on, on the angles that you pull on the fish. And when the fish reacts, when the fish jumps or rolls or does something, when she expends energy, then you react to that and you pull as hard as you can. And that really, really um, helps us land those fish a lot faster. And good for the fish, obviously. Great for the yeah, fish. That's what um, you want to be doing. Yes. I mean, our first priority is to make sure the fish swims away strong. You know, So we don't want to fight them for hours and hours. That's also, no, I don't kill any top and doesn't matter for world records or whatever, all the fish go back into the water alive, you know. Nice. Well, good philosophy there. Well, I've heard, Arno, that you're working on a new book. And, you know, you were telling me the other day that kind of a biography of your angling adventures, stories that cover your exploration and, and your pioneering work in the early days of the Seychelles. And then, of course, stories from, you know, Congo, Angola, Gabon, other areas. This is, uh, is going to be a pretty amazing project. 
Yes, the book's called Life Through a Polarized Lens because <laughs> I spend my life wearing polarized glasses and shooting photographs with a polarized filter on the end of the lens. So it's been um, almost six years in the making, but uh, every year you keep on guiding, the book just grows and grows. More so, chapters. More chapters. So hopefully we'll, we, can, we can start thrash it out maybe in six or eight months. It should be close to completion. Nice. Well, a lot of years of, of fishing all over Africa and certainly in some really kind of untouchable, inaccessible places, uh, probably more crazy stories and experiences than, than most of us can imagine. But uh, right now, I'm going to put you on the spot. How about one great story right now, something crazy that's happened to you in your years of exploration? If, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you're sitting at a bar, you're having pints with, <laughs> with clients, your buddies, and it's like, oh. This one time, let me tell you this. Let's let's hear one of those stories. Okay, so this one time, <laughs> we were camped uh, camped on a remote beach in the Republic of Congo, and um, we drove about so about twenty eight kilometers to a remote river mouth, and there's literally nobody out there, and it's actually close to the border of Gabon. So as we get there, I'm busy rigging up, and we've had these little tiny Zodiacs with twenty five horsepower engines on. And as we stopped, I'm busy stripping flyline off the reel. Wave comes in and we flip the boat. And here we go. And the tide's pulling us out um, for miles. And we can't, whatever we do, we can't paddle back to shore. Shark infested waters. So there we go. And no one's there. No one's there. And usually the villagers, you know, they go, go out early, early morning, but they back sort of by 830 and we drift now all this stuff's going through your mind you know we've lost everything i held on to my fly rod so i'm sitting on top of this little boat you know holding my fly rod we drifting into gabonese waters we don't have our passports with us we got nothing you know no water nothing nothing with us and we probably drifted for about two hours and we i saw a tiny speck on the horizon it was some of the local fishermen that came back um they came back quite late we were very fortunate so we took our shirts off and kind of tried to make a flag with a fly rod and wave. And they came and helped us, put us on shore, invited us in, gave us food, water, you know, um, helped us take the motor off. We did a capsize procedure, started the motor. But yeah, without those guys, who knows? You know, we we still would have been alive. The legend of Arno Matthew would have been much shorter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's a pretty crazy story, you know. Um, yeah, that's, that's what you got to do when you're exploring. You go out there and you've got nothing. You can't call anybody. You've got no radios. You know, you just have to put yourself out there. That's pretty amazing. Well, I can't wait to read the book. It's going to be exciting for sure. So let me ask you this. What's the future, in your opinion, look like for these West African fisheries? Where do you see things in that area, say, 10 years from now? I think in Gabon, it's it's very positive. Uh, I think the, the kind of... Um, viewpoint of the guys is they really want to go uh, more into high-end tourism promote that i mean gabon at this stage has got more national parks than a country like south africa for instance and because they they're so diligent and and so great at, at the conservation you know they're really pushing for it so i think it's 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 probably going to become the next florida keys you know to put it that way um in africa i think it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing um i see great things on the horizon for, for that area hopefully without the jet skis and the uh <laughs> <laughs> yes if, I yeah. mean, if you look at the if you look at the layout of the place you kind of see florida without the houses yeah it looks the same you know it's just a lot of mangroves and uh you know little rivers coming out and it, it looks very similar but i think as far as um development goes that's probably another 50 60 years out for it to get anywhere near near there you know well 
That's great. And, and I'm so stoked you could join us here in Montana during your visit to the States and sit down with us. I have one last question for you, and, and that is, what's next for Arno Mathie? I mean, what do the, the years ahead look like? You've, you've already done so much in your lifetime. You've pioneered all these incredible waters. What, you know, what's the future hold for you? Well, yeah. firstly, you know, I've got to make sure this operation in Gabon goes well, get the book done. And then, yeah, I've got a few things on my radar that I need to go and explore. Um, I think that's in my blood, you know, the exploration. So I'm, I'm looking at a few options north of where I am. That's all I can say for now. And one or two further south of where I am. But uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm, I'm going to keep exploring, keep making time for that. And yeah, keep going and guiding as long as I can, because that's what I love doing. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you, Jim. Much appreciated. Well, that's it for this episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel, adventure, and exploration. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com where you can research and plan your next fishing trip, download the latest Yellow Dog catalog, check out the travel blog, and of course, sign up for insider deals and specials. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Waypoints. And always remember, no matter where you fish or how long it takes you to get there, no one ever regretted a life of adventure. This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling. Thank you for joining us and be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more trip updates, travel news, expert advice, and adventure profiles. Thank you.